0: Good morning. Now, I know that you guys are used to a person which with a much cooler hairstyle than I have, but for today, we're just going to have to make do. I'm told that in a few years that problem will be solved, though. <laughs> but today is a special Sunday. Today is Youth Sunday. It's an opportunity for us to kind of talk to you a bit about what youth is doing, display the youth ministry in the church, but... We've done that earlier, but I also want to kind of tell you a bit about our leaders. So our, our leaders, our youth leaders, are fantastic. In fact, Justin, Drew, and Taylor, if you guys want to stand up real quick. And the reason that I'm having them stand up is I want you to look around. I want you to see who they are because I want you to know, hey, these are the leaders that are taking care of my students when they come to youth group on Wednesdays and Sundays, when they're going to events, and I want you to be able to see the way that they function in church, and you'll notice that they've got their hands in a whole lot more than just youth ministry. These are faithful people, they know the gospel, they believe it, and they can share it, and each of them is an example that I think that the junior hires and high schoolers should emulate. So you guys can sit down, but that's who the leaders are, and also those things, knowing the gospel, believing the gospel, being able to share it, and being an example for the young people, those are the criteria for youth leaders. So if you're someone and you're like, hey, I know the gospel, I believe the gospel, and there are things in my life that I think young people can emulate, shoot me an email. If you think that youth is a place that you might wanna serve, let's talk about it. But as I do youth, one of the things that I think about frequently, is what is my goal? What is it that I'm trying to accomplish with the students that are entrusted to me? What is it that me and the leaders want to do? And I think a lot actually about Daniel chapter three, which is our passage for today and I didn't pick it, but it's so fitting and I'm so glad that this is what was given to me because my goal in youth ministry is to help produce a generation like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Daniel 1 through 3 is an area that I think about frequently. But before we can talk about Daniel 3, we need to start with Daniel chapter 1. Because chapter 3 doesn't start in chapter 3, it starts in chapter 1. So I'm going to give you a brief synopsis of what's happened up to this point before we dive in to specifically the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And basically, in the very beginning of Daniel 1, there's a king reigning in Judah, and his name is Jehoiakim. And he's the son of Josiah, and he's an evil, wicked king. And early in his reign, about three years in, King Nebuchadnezzar comes, and he subjugates Judah. And at this time, he takes a bunch of the children of the officials of Judah, and he carries them off to Babylon. And at this point, this is when Daniel and his friends are carried off. And at this time, they're about 11 to 15 years old. They're junior high aged, and that's important. Because he carries them off. About seven years later, at the end of the reign of King Jehoiakim, King Jehoiachin becomes king after Jehoiakim dies. And Nebuchadnezzar comes and he sieges Jerusalem. And Jehoiachin surrenders. And at this point, Nebuchadnezzar carries off 10,000 more of the Judeans. And he, he instates King Zedekiah, another son of Josiah. And then 11 years after that, Zedekiah rebels. Nebuchadnezzar conquers Judah again. He kills all of Zedekiah's kids in front of him, gouges out Zedekiah's eyes, and carries off thousands more from Judah, destroys the walls, burns down the temple, burns down the city. And Daniel and his friends are the first group in these groups of exiles. And they're carried off to Babylon in order to be merged and formed into Babylonian governors. They're being raised to be officials. So in junior high, they're brought into Babylon, they change their names, they take away their Jewish Jewish names, they give them Babylonian names, they've taken them from their families, their country, and they're trying to strip them of their ethnic identity. They don't want Jews, they want Babylonians. And then for three years, they educate Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel in the ways of the Chaldeans. And during this time, this is when Daniel chapter 1 happens, where Daniel and his friends They recognize that they can't eat the food that the Babylonians want to feed them. And so they go to the chief eunuch and they say, can we eat water and vegetables? And their faithfulness starts young. They're in junior high. And already separated from their family, separated from their support structures, their relationship with God is their own they knew the Bible well enough to know that for one reason or another, they couldn't eat the food, and they had the fortitude required to speak to the chief eunuch. Their faith was already their own. And the thing that I think about is that it's important that we as a church have a sense of urgency in how we raise up our young people, because sometimes there can be this temptation to think, oh, you're too young to be able to understand this or handle this. But what happens here on Sunday mornings is not too complicated for a junior hire. It's actually important that we're able to get them involved in the church, that they are learning how to listen and study and learn from a sermon, that they're learning how to function inside the church at large, that they're learning how to serve, and that their relationship with God is becoming their own and not just their parents. And that's a role that all of us play. Not just the people working in Sunday school, not just the people working in youth ministry. That's something that should matter to each of us because we're sending our students and our children into the world at large, and we need them to be powerful forces for Christ. And that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about what are the ingredients for a powerful testimony. And it comes through personal faithfulness. And for Daniel and his friends, that started early. And in Daniel chapter 2, after that education, that three years of education is done, uh, God has rewarded that faithfulness. It says that when Nebuchadnezzar evaluated Daniel and his friends, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and the enchanters in the entire kingdom, not just in their graduating class. And at that point, Daniel 2 happens where Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that none of his wise men can interpret, and Daniel interprets it. And as a result, Daniel is promoted to the king's court, And at Daniel's request, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are put over provinces of Babylon. And that happened when they were about 15 to 18 years old, when they were high school aged. They had a pattern of personal faithfulness, and they were being put into high government positions. And now in Daniel chapter 3, we don't know exactly how old Daniel and his friends are, but they're going to be most likely in their early 20s. The youngest they can be is about 16 years old. The oldest they can be is in their 40s. But at this point, Nebuchadnezzar has been conquering all of these nations and he's taking from each of these nations exiles that he's bringing in to educate in the way of the Chaldeans. He's stripped them from their families and their countries. He's stripping them of their ethnic identities. He's training and indoctrinating them to be Babylonians. And now at the end of that process, he gathers all of the officials from all of Babylon brings them to a single place, and he says, and now you will worship in the Babylonian religion or you will die. He is completing that process of taking this multi-ethnic group of people and forcing them into the mold of a Babylonian official. And now Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3 are college age. And that's why I think about this story so often. This is not the extraordinary works of adult mature people these are children and at this point i'm going to start actually getting into you know the story but our first point is the hostile environment where is this taking place what exactly is happening and if you read with me in chapter 3 verse 1 king nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, and its breadth, six cubits, which a cubit is about a foot and a half. So this is a 90-foot tall, nine-foot-wide statue, so about nine stories tall, and it's an idol. And we don't know if this is an image made to one of the gods of the Babylonians, or maybe it's an image made to Nebuchadnezzar himself, but what we do know is that Nebuchadnezzar is making an idol that will be worshipped. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent And when you see that kind of repetition happening in the Bible, in Hebrew, that repetition is important. And already in English, we can kind of understand that when you repeat something, you're emphasizing the point. But that's even more so in Hebrew. So when he's saying the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, and all the officials, he is saying this instruction is going out to every single government official in Babylon. And every single government official in Babylon shows up. So this is to emphasize that this is being done to every individual in this group. And they come. And in verse 4, And the heralds proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And again, that repetition, peoples, nations, languages. This is a multi-ethnic group of all of the people that Nebuchadnezzar has been gathering and training, and every single individual is receiving this command, and every single individual follows it, regardless of the group where they were in, regardless of who they were. And we're going to keep reading, and we're going to see that there were three people that didn't. But the important thing to understand is that they are in a hostile environment. Like when we think about Babylon, Babylon at this time was the military superpower of the world. They were a center of academics and learning. They were a center of intellectualism. They were at the top of the world. And they were a pagan, anti-God nation. In Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 11, if you want to put that up, this is God describing the Chaldeans. And he says, Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose might is their God. The Babylonians were a country of people so confident, and so secure in their own capability that they felt unshakable. And all of this should be ringing some bells. Because all of this is describing the country that we are in right now. We are in the military superpower of the world. We are in a center of academics and learning, and we think ourselves so high and wise, and we have so much confidence in our own security that we almost worship it, And we are in an extremely anti-God nation that is only becoming more so. And the difference between us and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is that we are not yet in a position where we have physical harm being threatened if we be faithful. But they did. And one thing that can be kind of a trap is that we look back on older cultures and we think, oh, we've progressed so far since then. You know, their academics and their scholars, they didn't know anything about the truth. They didn't care about God. They had no moral fiber. But in our modern day, it's different. Our academics, now those are people who know and care about the truth. And if you want to go to the next slide, you'll see that God says that we're wrong when we think that. Because this is God, through Paul, describing non-Christians. And it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And the thing that we need to think about is that in this situation, Babylon is this extremely pagan nation. It's an anti-God nation. And it's not because they didn't have the intellect to understand God. It's because they didn't care. And when we look around at all of the smart non-Christians that exist in our culture, in our universities, in our schools, and anywhere, what we need to understand is that the fundamental characteristic that they express is that they suppress the truth that they don't care about God, that they're trying to find any way to explain the universe without God, and that they are going to be indoctrinating and training our students, our children, and everyone else to do the same. But there's something else that is extremely important to think about with Daniel and his friends. It says that every nation, people, and language bowed down and worshipped. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not the only Jews. They were carried off in a group. And it's not just pressure and opposition that comes from the people who claim to be non-Christians. There are people who will raise their hand and say, I am a Christian, I believe the Bible, and then proceed to live and teach everything that God hates. You know, I think of an example. When I was in high school, there was a guy who, he was just willing to engage he was a Christian, and he was willing to engage with the students and the professors in class about whatever topic they wanted to bring up, be it about morality, about evolution, about any of those issues. He was willing to engage. And I remember one time in particular that he had finished this little, like, five, ten-minute debate with the students and the teacher, and it seemed like it was, they were ruminating on it, that the arrow had kind of hit, that they were thinking about it. And in that moment, another person raises his hand. We'll call him Tom. Another person raises his hand, named Tom, and he says, hey, I'm a Christian. I grew up in the church. I went to a Christian school, and I don't agree with anything he just said. And then he put his hand down, he sat back down, and that was his contribution. And all of a sudden, all of the people who had been thinking about and challenged by the thing that this person had said now had an excuse to just ignore it. And that guy, Tom, a couple years later, he had been, uh, you know, he had had completely apostated. He had been writing articles about his time in the church as a youth had poisoned him. But it was clear even years earlier that he wasn't a Christian. And there are times where, you know, Justin Wirth and I, we talk all the time. There are people that it seems like the only reason that they're there is for Satan to use them to muddy the waters to confuse the Christians and the non-Christians that are in the room with them. It's not that there's a real commitment to what the Bible says, but they still carry the name. And one of the issues is, it's not always just people that aren't Christians and claim to be. Sometimes there are genuine Christians that are just misled. And sometimes there are hard-hearted Christians that don't live and believe the things that they should be living and believing. But this is the circumstance that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego find themselves in. And I can just imagine the other Jews that are there bowing down to this idol, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, guys, it's not real. It's not a real God. Bowing doesn't mean anything. It's not really unfaithful. I mean, the Ten Commandments, that's just poetry. That kind of repetition and structure, the way that it says you shall, you shall, you shall, you shall not, you shall not, you shall not, you can't honestly expect to take that literally. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego already had a pattern of personal faithfulness, and this was no different. And if we move on, we move into our second point, that there was personal faithfulness. And if you read in verse 8 to 18, it says, Therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to the king Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. That's referring to the end of chapter 2. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Which at this point I should mention, you'll notice that Daniel's name does not appear in that list. Now, Daniel is one of the most righteous people who has ever lived. Later, at the same time as this, Ezekiel is a contemporary of Daniel, and when God is talking about the wickedness of a nation, he says, even if Job, Noah, and Daniel were in this nation, by their righteousness, they would only be able to save themselves. So God identifies Daniel as one of the most righteous people that we have ever seen, and there is no doubt that had Daniel been here, he would not have bowed. Maybe he was out of town, maybe he was sick, we don't know, but you can be certain that he would have been here. So what we see is that the same moral fiber that defines Daniel also defines his friends as without his leadership and influence, they are doing the same thing that this group of four have been doing since the very beginning. They're being faithful. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And, you know, something to think about with that. You know, that's that's an interesting decision to kind of throw down the gauntlet with God. I would advise against that. Um, (laughs) But we see that Nebuchadnezzar, he challenges them and he challenges their God. So this is now an issue of God's honor. But also, something else to consider You know, when I was growing up and watching VeggieTales, I always imagined this story as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being carried off into a separate room where they were personally interacting with King Nebuchadnezzar. But that's actually not what this is. This is still in front of all of the officials that were gathered. The idol is still right there. They still have the opportunity to bow and worship it. And the furnace is right over here with everyone watching. And if you've ever been in a situation where you were in a classroom and the teacher like, calls you out specifically, how your face goes red and you're not nervous about the teacher, but you're nervous about all of your friends watching you, uh, imagine that times 100. As they are now standing before all of the officials, they're standing in front of King, of King Nebuchadnezzar, brought in front of everyone, and they are being ridiculed. And at this point, they're going to respond. And I want to remind you At the end of chapter one, it says that Nebuchadnezzar had found Daniel and his friends to be ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in the entire kingdom. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're kind of at the top of this intellectual world of Babylon. These are geniuses. And we're about to see their answer. Which, I personally am super into apologetics. Always have been. I love them. And this is... Genuinely, one of the verses and stories that if you are interested in apologetics, which is like arguing for your faith, reasoning for your faith, this is one of the most important sections for you to understand and internalize. See if you can follow their argument. I'll admit it's kind of complicated. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Oh, If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And I mean, I know I kind of front-loaded that a little bit, and you might be scratching your head a little bit and be like, wasn't this apologetics? (laughs) But there's something that's really important to understand. Personally, when I was in high school, I... Was I thought that apologetics like, was my evangelistic effort. I was studying the arguments. I was studying the science. And I was engaging with anyone that I could engage with, trying to argue them into the kingdom. And if you had asked me, I would have given you the right answer and said, oh yeah, it's not my ability to share the truth with someone that saves them. It's God. It's not my ability to be everything that I have to be. It's not my ability to be eloquent that brings them into the kingdom. That's the work of God. And I would have said that but my life sure didn't indicate that. And every time I walked away from a conversation where I didn't you know, convince the other person, I always thought, man, if only I had just said it in a better way. But there was a specific circumstance that completely shattered that view for me. I was in a college public speaking class and we were giving persuasive speeches and the same guy actually that I talked about earlier who was you know, engaging with students and professors, he gave a speech on abortion and he was taking the pro-life position, and it was like an eight minute speech, and then there was a Q&A afterward. And for most of the people in the class, that Q&A was like 30 seconds to a minute, but for this home slice, it was 20. <laughs> so like eight minutes of speech, and then all of a sudden, everyone in the class was 100% down to hop on this. And he was debating the entire class with about seven people in particular and one person at the head of that seven. And at the end of that 20 minutes, that head, the person who had been engaging with him most directly, said something that rocked my world. She said, you know, man, I'm listening to your arguments and everything that you've said makes sense. Everything that you've said follows. I mean, honestly, I think logically, you have demonstrated that yes, life begins at conception and you have actually dealt with every question that I've given you. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, so this is what good apologetics looks like. That person just argued someone to the right point of view. And then she finished her sentence. And she said, but I still can't accept it. And even after having been brought to her wit's end, she was not willing to accept the things that she were, was able to recognize were true. And brought right back to Romans 1, they suppress the truth. It's not that they don't know it, it's that they don't care. And that shattered me because I immediately thought back to all the four years that I had spent arguing with people, and I thought to myself, did I ever just give them the truth? Did I ever just share the gospel clearly, or was I only engaging in arguments and responding to their points? Have I ever just given them the truth and let God work in them? And to my shame, I couldn't think of a single time. And Again, I love apologetics. Even now, it's important to see that the Bible is reasonable, that God holds up to the universe he made. But at the heart of that has to be an understanding that it is God that influences the change in people, that it is God who converts people, that it is God who gives someone clarity. And no matter how well we speak, no matter how well we teach, no matter how well we argue, that is nothing if God is not in it. And that needs to guide and be at the heart of our evangelistic efforts. But, again, just reemphasizing, this is not the first time that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are being faithful. You know, if you want to pull up Luke 16.10, it says, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. And this is Jesus After he's just shared a parable of a manager who was squandering his master's money and his master was away and then his master catches wind of it and he says, dude, what are you doing? I'm going to remove you from your office. You've been squandering my wealth. And the manager in response doesn't clean up his act. He doesn't say, oh my goodness, I'm sorry. I'll be on it this time. He goes to each of that man's debtors and thinks, well, if I'm getting fired, at least maybe I'll find someone to live with, and he just gives away the master's money, trying to earn their favor. And the thing to think about is that that guy, when he had no accountability, when he had ease, he was unfaithful. And as soon as he was put in a difficult situation where the heat was turned up, he was just more unfaithful. And this is Jesus commentary on that. Just like that man was unfaithful in little, he was unfaithful in much. What else would you expect? And in our lives, we can run into kind of two issues where we look at stories like this. Issue 1 is we can look at Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego as stained glass saints, thinking, "Man, I could never be like that. That's beyond me." And that's that's not the angle we should take. They're just men. They're just boys. But another issue that we can run into is we can look at this situation and we can think, oh yeah, I'd be faithful. I'd, yeah, threaten to throw me in the furnace, let's go. I would 100% do exactly what I'm supposed to do. And when I'm evaluating my own life and my own heart and I look at these stories, it's like, okay, what do I do when the doors are closed, there's no accountability and no one knows? What do I do in the small things? When there is a price to be paid and it's a small price, am I willing to pay that small price? When there's no price to be paid, am I still motivated by what God wants me to do? Am I still motivated by personal faithfulness? And if the answer is no, I have no reason to expect that in a much more more dire circumstance that I would be faithful there. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were faithful in every area of their life. God was the audience member that they cared about. And when all of a sudden someone happened to be watching, they were faithful there too. And when all of a sudden there was a high price to pay, they were faithful there too. And something that we can kind of lose sight of is just that when we want a powerful testimony, when we want to be effective, when we want to be everything that we're supposed to be, that doesn't start in a strategy meaning that starts in the privacy of a prayer closet where only God knows what you're doing. And that's where Daniel and his friends started. And so we have personal faithfulness. But when you're in a hostile environment and you're being personally faithful, there is a result, and that result is a powerful witness. Because now we see the response of King Nebuchadnezzar. In verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed, which, if you think about the fact that this is, again, in front of all of the government officials, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar just got back talk from these Hodunk Jews. I'm not too confident he's happy about that. <laughs> and I mean, seems like Daniel in verse 19 would agree. <laughs> And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. These men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. And they were thrown in to the burning, fiery furnace. Which, think about this, the urgency of the order... These are government officials. These are high government officials. Those would have been some nice clothes. And usually, if you're about to kill someone, you'll loot the body. They didn't even strip Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They just didn't care. They just wanted them in. There is urgency. There is fury. There is anger. And they are thrown into the furnace. And in verse 22... Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Which, I kind of want to pause on that. Because when I read that verse, it makes my heart heavy. Because there is a narrative reason that that's included. You know, the, Daniel is clarifying like, this isn't some small flame that they're getting thrown into and that maybe they could have naturally survived. This is a flame that is so hot that even being around it killed the people that threw them in and they're in the heart of it. So the reason this verse is included is to clarify that a miracle is happening. But those men that died were real men, those were actual people. And I think about the fact. You know, a lot of times when I'm in youth, I, I ask my students, hey, what should this person have done? What should their response have been? And in this case, these strong men, these soldiers, their response should have been to say no. When they were ordered to throw these three men in, they should have said no. And they probably would have been killed for it, but they died anyway. And could you imagine being those men And seconds after throwing three of God's faithful servants into a furnace, standing before that God yourself. That's horrifying. Because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into a furnace that day, but they were not the ones who were burned. And I just think about the fact that God doesn't have a different standard for Christians and non-Christians. These men who threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace were just as beholden to God as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego themselves. God doesn't have a different moral standard. Every single person is going to stand before God. And if there's people in this room who are not Christians, just remember, eventually that's coming. Because these strong men did not come to work that day thinking, yeah, I'm going to die. This is the last day. They still had plans for next week. And none of us is promised tomorrow. None of us is promised the next day, the next week. None of us is promised the next 20 years. And it's important that we are recognizing who God is and what he expects from us. Those strong men had a front row seat to the example that they should have been following. And then they stood before God. And for each of us, that's something that we should take seriously. And as Christians, we're not motivated by fear. You know, a lot of times people say, "Oh, you mean your God? He uh, he tells you to do the right thing, and if you don't do it, he just burns you alive." That doesn't sound like a loving God. But if you're a Christian, you are not motivated by fear, because there is no possibility, if you are a Christian, that you could ever go to hell, because God has saved you, not by your own merit, but by faith alone. As a Christian, you aren't motivated by fear to do what God wants you to do. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego weren't motivated by fear. They were motivated by love. And we are motivated by love. None of us can be good enough. None of us can be effective enough. But we should be running after God. Let me refine my place. That was longer than it was supposed to be, but hey, that's for free. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. And then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste, and he declared to his counselors, declared declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, true, O king. And he answered and said, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth It's like a son of the gods. And I mean, a lot of ink has been spilled about specifically who this person was. Some people say it was Jesus. Some people just say it was an angel. We aren't told. And the reason we aren't told is because it's not important. (laughs) The important thing is that God just saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And again, he did it in front of the king and in front of every official in that area. And again, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't wake up this morning thinking, guys, we need to strategize. How are we going to have an effective witness in front of the king and all of these government officials? They woke up and they said, let's be personally faithful today. And then God used them. And so they're in the furnace. And then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, boy, did his tune change. Who is the God who can deliver you from my hands? Oh, the Most High God. How about that? Come out here and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language, notice the repetition again, that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their house laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. And if you want to pull up the next verse, this is out of 1 Corinthians, but something to think about This is Paul talking about his ministry and about the ministry of other great men, and he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And something to think about with this is that it is not in our own strength that we have powerful, effective lives and ministries. It is not by our own strength that we are effective parents. It is not by our own strength that we are effective ministers. It is not by our own strength that we are effective evangelists. It's by God's. And I talk to my dad a lot about youth, about the things that I'm concerned about, the things that are going well, the plans that I have, the things that I wish I could do better. And he gives me the same advice almost every time. He says, John... Make sure that there's nothing happening in your personal life that would cause God to be against your ministry. Be faithful. Be righteous. Be faithful to God in your own personal life, and then pray. Ask God to help you, because you might do your work, you might teach, you might prepare, you might do any number of things, but it is not you that is effective in your ministry. And that's an important thing for us to remember. We aren't good enough. We aren't strong enough. I'm not eloquent enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not wise enough to give you anything of value this morning. All I can do is read and hope that God will honor it. And the thing that I think about is the absolute greatest sermon ever taught, if it is taught to a brick wall, is useless. And it's God who goes into the hearts of everyone who's listening, and it's God who causes anything to be helpful or effective. In the exact same way that in evangelism, it is not my ability to formulate and to present the gospel. It is instead my job to give the truth as God gave it and let him do the rest. And think about that. Just if I have a choice between having all of my capability being what fuels ministry or just letting God do it, I'd rather have God do it. (laughs) God's a little bit smarter than I am. He's a little bit more experienced, and he's a little bit, you know, better at what he does. Hopefully that's not blasphemous to use that kind of expression about God. (laughs) But if you understand that it's God who's giving you power in your life, that it's God who's giving you power in your ministry, and that it's God who is enabling you to have an effect, that frees you up to pursue God alone and let him take care of it. And it doesn't mean that we don't work. It doesn't mean that we aren't strategizing. It doesn't mean that we aren't learning. It doesn't mean that we're not putting effort in. I didn't just wake up this morning and wing it. (laughs) But it's an understanding that it's not our own capability. It's God's. And something that I want to conclude with. A lot of times people read this story and they think that the happy ending is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were saved from the furnace. That was not the happy ending. The happy ending was that God glorified his own name in front of all of those officials and in front of that entire country. And he used Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to do it. This story would have been a happy ending if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had died. God still would have used it. And something that I want to leave you with, this is the exact same story as the story of Stephen in the book of Acts. And Stephen was a man who was personally faithful. He was not primarily a teacher. He was appointed as a deacon. He was a man who was primarily responsible to wait tables and to serve the needs of the people in the church. And when he was put in a situation where he was around a bunch of Jews and he had the opportunity to share the gospel, he just did. He was faithful in that circumstance just like all the others. And at the end of that time, Stephen was stoned to death. He was killed, and God used that to start persecution in the church, and at first that seems like, oh, goodness gracious, that's not a happy ending, but that persecution, it dispersed the church out of Jerusalem into the countries around it, and that was the beginning of the international spread of the gospel, and God took a person who was personally faithful like Stephen, who possibly died thinking that what he did didn't matter. And he used that to begin the spread of his gospel to the entire world. And Stephen didn't realize it, but there was a man in that crowd holding coats, a man breathing threats and murder against the church, a man in hearty approval of Stephen's death, whose eyewitness account would eventually be written down. And the words of Stephen on that day, a humble deacon serving God in all the ways that we didn't see have been recorded and used for the encouragement of people for thousands of years. And that is the same story as the story in Daniel because when you are in a hostile environment and you are personally faithful, God will use you. God will give you power and God will reward that work. And it might not be in exactly the way that you might prefer it to be but that is what God honors because that's what God cares about. So with that, let's, let's bow our heads and pray it out, and we'll have some music up here. Lord, thank you that none of us have to trust in our own ability. Thank you that none of us is strong enough to think that we are accomplishing the work of the kingdom on our own. None of us is strong enough to accomplish what we need to accomplish in our families, to accomplish what we need to accomplish in our churches, to accomplish what we need to accomplish in our cultures, and in our communities. But Lord, you are powerful enough. Lord, I pray that you would help us to recognize that you are a far more capable minister and a far more capable entity than any of us could ever be, and that we have access to the very power of God that lives within us through your spirit, that we can pursue after your righteousness and be faithful in the things that no one sees, and then trust you to give strength to everything else. I pray that you would help us as a congregation to not only be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego ourselves, but to help raise up a generation after us who will be faithful as they go into a hostile culture that will only continue to be more hostile. Lord, I pray these things in the name of our King Jesus Christ. Amen.